We're going to cover three strange things that show up inside of that, which is actually the title of today's message. Lampstands, stars, and angels. We'll see these things, um, these images throughout the book of Revelation. They'll repeat several different times, but I want to explain them to you today, and I want to help you understand what John the Revelator is seeing and what he is participating in. So join me in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, as we read. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus." I want you to understand there are different people with the same name in the Bible. How many of you know I'm the only Dexter you know? Can I see your hand? Okay, that's a lot of you, right? It's a unique name. John, not so much, okay? John is, and he's a biblical name, okay? But this is not John who was the baptizer. It is John, one of the sons of Zebedee. His brother was James, And they were actually called, at one point, the Sons of Thunder. They were a fiery band of brothers, if you will. And he was a disciple of Jesus that now he is on this island, which is not too far from Ephesus, off the coast of what we know as Turkey today. And he's there. Church tradition tells us that he was exiled there for a time due to the Roman authorities, But then he was released and then moved later in life to finish out his life in the city of Ephesus. So this is not the only book he wrote. He wrote other New Testament epistles that are uh, available to us to read as well. But I want you to notice the use of his word in that second line on your screen, the word tribulation. How many of you have ever heard this word in regards to the end of the world? You've heard this word before. So I want to make sure that you understand that the word tribulation really basically just means trouble, persecution. It means uh, things that are, you, are being, you are suffering through. That is the point of what John is saying. But if you notice his language, he is saying he is currently in tribulation and he is a partner with you, the people he's writing to. So I want to be clear that you understand that there are going to be seasons, and there have been seasons, and there will continue, seasons of tribulation against the believers. Right now, people around the world in various nations and countries are enduring very harsh persecution for their faith. We've had issues that have risen to the top of the Supreme Court here in the freest nation in the world regarding whether or not People have to bake cakes for other people, all because of religious persecution. Those days are going to increase, the Bible says, as the time draws near for God to send his son to return to us and take us with him. So I want you to think in terms of the original recipients of the scripture, but also how it can apply to us today. We are not, look at me and hear me well, you and I in Mississippi, in the Bible Belt of America, or what used to be called the Bible Belt, 
are not exempt from tribulation. I don't think that the first prayer we should pray when we experience any future persecution is, God, why me? Pity poor me. That's not the attitude of anyone who endured persecution in the word of God. In fact, God promises he'll be with us and walk us through any of those things. So I think there's lessons to be learned in tribulation, but I also think there's an amazing moment for us to shine the light of Christ and his love to the world around us and to tell his truth regardless of the persecution. Jesus himself warned his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, talking of himself, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Or another version says, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. So Jesus is saying, yes, you're going to endure some trouble in this world on account of me. But take heart because I have overcome the world. So we need to be knowledgeable about the fact that tribulation is going to increase, but also the Bible makes it very clear that there will be a future time of tribulation that will come to the world, the Bible says, that will have never been before. It'll be a distinct event that spans a period of time, and here's what it is going to accomplish. I want you to take notes throughout this series, put them in your phone, whatever it is. The tribulation is meant for two purposes in Scripture, and we're not going to dive deep into it today, but I want you to understand this. God is going to pour out his wrath and judgment on unbelievers during tribulation, and he's also going to discipline the Jewish people for rejecting him and give them an opportunity to repent. That's the two purposes of the future coming tribulation. And so God's going to discipline his original people and call them to repentance because of the covenant that they have broken uh, that he established with Abraham. Verse 10, it says this in Revelation 1. John says something interesting. It doesn't appear very many other places in scripture. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I want you to raise your hand if you are reading a Bible in front of you right now that has a lower S for spirit. Anybody? Okay, most of them are capitalized. Some versions don't capitalize it, but I'm going to expound on that in just a second. And he says this, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. In the spirit, this phrasing, if you look at the original way that they translated from Greek into our English, the understanding is he is in a deeply connected spiritual state. You could almost say the word trance. Now, I know that seems far-fetched because you're like, wait, does that happen? <laughs> I mean, do people really go into a trance? This is a deeply connected spiritual environment and moment where his state of mind, he basically has a sense of being directly controlled by God. This is what you've imagined happened to every biblical writer when we say the word of God is divinely inspired. 
you, and I've made the joke before, you think God came in, possessed the person, and then they just started scribbling. And when they woke up or came to, they said, well, I can't believe what I wrote. This is awesome. That's not exactly what happened. We believe it's divinely inspired and that God used their cultural context, their experience, all of those things to be able to become what is known as the word of God. But this moment that John is recording is one of those moments where you could say he was completely overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord. Another phrase that appears here that doesn't appear very many other places in the New Testament is the word, the Lord's day. What John's referring to is that he had gone to worship. He is worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. And the Bible says he was in the spirit. And it says he heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. How many of you have ever played trumpet? Come on, you come, come on, a couple of you. All right. I was going to say, uh, how many of you have ever been in a band, high school band? Okay. High school. Yeah. Not high school musical, but okay. The trumpet that's being talked about is not a band member's piece of equipment. The trumpet is a war trumpet. It is the sound that the Israelites would have heard in the Old Testament when those who were in charge of the trumpeting, they would come up with ram's horns trumpets and they would sound the alarm in order to call the people to war. This is the sound that John is hearing. It is so loud, it's as if an army trumpeter is blowing this war trumpet. So I think what John is trying to get us to understand is that whatever he is hearing is loud and clear. Verse 11, he hears the voice and it says to him this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I've shown you a picture on a map before, but if you want to look it up later, you can. Just type in images on Google for seven churches of Revelation. You'll see they all pretty much litter the coast. I have to draw backwards when I'm facing you so that you see what I'm doing. Okay, so it's on the western, it would be on the western side of what is modern-day Turkey, all of those seven churches, and the island of Patmos is out in the water, okay? He is writing what he is told that he's going to see in this book. Again, if you weren't here recently when we started this series, back in 2018, I did an entire series called Seven, which was individual messages about these messages to the churches that are listed in Revelation. I gave some cultural context and clues that God's word has for us about these cities. And then what I'm going to do is skip them next week because I've already done them. So you can go back and listen to that message series if you want to look it up. It's on our podcast and on our website back from 2018. John is able to see supernatural images and watch events unfold in a vision. And he's told to write down what he sees. How many of you have ever woken up from a dream and immediately wrote down what you saw? Anybody? I can't be the only one. Okay, I've done that a number of times in my life. In fact, in the middle of the night, I've been shaken or woken from a dream, and it was so crazy and wild. I was like, I'm going to have a story to tell Amy later. And so I put notes in my phone, or I scribbled them down on a sheet of paper kind of thing. 
There are some, our, our brains are interesting places when we're asleep, right? So John is told that he's going to write down what he sees and send it to these seven churches. This is very important. Think about the context. The Romans are still in charge of that entire empire and area of the world. These churches are being persecuted. John is being persecuted, most likely, and has been exiled for a time to this place. And now he is writing specifically to the seven churches the things that he sees. They do have applications for us today. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Some versions of the Bible have been translated, uh, have translated this word that we see on the screen, lampstands, as candlesticks. I grew up reading a version that says candlesticks, and I imagine seven little candles, you know, and Jesus standing in the center. I want you to understand the original context for what they're talking about, what John is seeing, and what he's trying to communicate to these people who are in mixed churches. Put yourself back in the sandals of those believers in the first century. There are people who have now walked away, let me say it like this, who in the eyes of other Jews have forsaken their faith because they've accepted Jesus as their Messiah. They've become Christian, but they still have all their Jewishness that comes with them, okay? Then there are these Gentiles who've served Zeus and Apollo, like all of these other gods and deities, Greek, Roman mythology, all this stuff, who have gotten radically saved and heard about the roots of this Jewish, now Christian faith, and this person who came to die for their sin and resurrect. These people are meeting together, just like you and I today, there are people in here with Methodism, Lutheran, Baptist, non-denominational, uh, old-time Pentecostal, all of it in the same room, and we come with our own ideas of things. So John is writing to them something that they could easily understand, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's called a menorah. This is the word that John is using and it is the lampstand that originally shows up in Exodus chapter 25. This is an image that's um, available online. Uh, there's a bunch of them, and I, can't, I won't get into all the details, but this is an authentic image of a replica. Um, there are other versions that the Jewish people today use during a different celebration that have additional candlesticks on them. But all of this has one source okay, of fuel technically, and they are all interconnected. Now, God gives Moses instructions on building the tabernacle in the Old Testament in Exodus 20 to 30, I guess, about 10 chapters worth. He tells him how to build the tabernacle, how to build the altars, how to build the stuff that goes inside of it. And in Exodus 25, he gives him instructions on this specific piece of furniture that is to never go out. It is to always stay lit. And in other places in the Old Testament is actually referred to as the lamp of God. There's an interesting correlation to Jesus' words, which I'm going to try to speak at one and a half speed today to get all of this out. But Jesus' words, when he says, I am the light of the world, 
most scholars believe and theologians believe that he was demonstrating and saying that during a feast where they were erecting a super big version of this in the temple during a ceremony to light that it would literally light the city at night. That's, I mean, the thing was six foot tall, it would at least part of the city. And Jesus in that shadow says, I am the light of the world. So now Jesus, this person that we will come to understand is Jesus, is standing among these seven golden lampstands. Verse 13 says this, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. So this is the son of man figure again. This is another term that can be used for Jesus throughout his ministry. He called himself the son of man. Um, He is the son of God and the son of man. The reason why he calls himself that and why we understand in scripture is for us to understand a very large word that we don't comfortably talk about all the time. And that is the word incarnate or incarnation. It means God in flesh, literally put on flesh. And so what John is seeing, he's seeing something that looks like a human figure But he's seeing this heavenly vision, and this figure is dressed with a long robe and a gold sash around his chest. Now, this is not, this is not a Black Friday bathrobe you bought your mom for $12, okay? This is a royal robe. It's a robe that would have been worn by a king, a ruler, a prince. It's a royal robe. And there are other places in the Old Testament that mention similar things. And they'll say something like this, a robe to the floor. It literally speaks of his royalty. In those days, and you may be familiar with this passage of scripture. Anybody remember the armor of God? Okay. That section of scripture where it says, and having your loins girded with Righteousness. Okay, we got anybody else? All right, having your loins girded. Okay, I don't know what you're thinking when you think of loins, and it's an Old Testament or old way of saying things, but basically it's a, it's a belt, okay? It's something that we, you would wrap around to gird to make sure that everything stayed in place. A golden sash would be different. This would be him wearing something that a dignitary would wear or someone of high office and you would be able to see them coming and be able to honor them, bow down to them, give them what we would call honorifics, call them by their title. So John is seeing this man figure who is God standing in the lampstands dressed in royalty, dignified and exalted. The next three verses describes some remarkable features of this Son of Man figure. We understand that the Son of Man that's being talked about here and elsewhere in Scripture is not an angel. I want you to understand this. And we'll do messages from time to time that cover some of the supernatural creatures, and we'll talk about it in this message series as well. Today, you might have your mind blown just a little bit. They, they don't all look like the little Valentine cherub, okay? Just saying, they are warriors, the Bible talks about, and they're messengers, and they do the will of God. They're incredible. But this is not what John is seeing. 
Neither is he seeing only just a human man who's some sort of designee that's been put in between these lampstands. You have to understand he's also giving language that sounds like all the Old Testament writers and some of the New Testament talk only about God. And I referenced that last week in our opening of the series. There are some words talking about riding on the clouds. We don't do as humans. But then all of a sudden, John says, it's him who is the cloud rider from the Old Testament. He is the one I'm seeing. So now, Jesus, the Son of Man, is being depicted in the next three verses. This surely is the same man from verses 5 and verses 8 that is called the firstborn of the dead, the Alpha, the Omega, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and the faithful witness. I want to give you three helpful instructions. You say, Pastor, you're always giving us practical messages, but now you're just telling me the Bible? No. I'm going to give you some practical application today to help you. Because I want to train you to be able to study God's word. So write these down. Write what you hear today. Write these down. Number one is this. Engage the data, not your imagination. Now, I know that might sound a little bit strange, but I want to prove to you the point of not using your imagination as you study the Bible to help inform you about the Bible. How many of you have ever heard uh, the proverb from, I think it's Proverbs 16, that talks about gray hair or white hair being a sign of wisdom or a crown of glory, right? I started saying that, yes, all the white hair people wave wave at me. I started saying that too because I thought, man, that's great because I'm getting really gray really quick. So it's a crown of glory the Lord is giving me. It's great. Okay. If I've heard that before... And then I jump into verse 14, and it talks about the descriptor is given of him having white hair. I would be very quick to just say, oh, well, John must be telling me that God is wise and Jesus is wise. But there's something deeper going on there. So I can't just use my imagination or what I remember from Sunday school about some image and apply that. I've really got to not just tap into my memories But I've got to tap into the word of God and engage the data. Do you understand what I'm saying today? Your imagination is not a trustworthy Bible study tool. Okay. Um, I love using my imagination. I love it. When I'm reading God's word, I want to imagine what it was like on the dusty road while those disciples walked in the direction they were going. And then all of a sudden, a third man joined them. I I want to imagine what it was like when Jesus humbled himself in in a place that they did not have closed-toed shoes, humbled himself in the time that he was about to be betrayed and got on his hands and knees at the feet of each one of his disciples, including Judas, to wash the manure and the dung and the dirt from the street out between their toes. I want to use my imagination and put myself there. But it's not a trustworthy way to study the Bible. So everybody got it? Say got it. Number two is this. Use a concordance. You say, Pastor, wait, what is this foreign word you're telling me? I'm going to explain it to you. Or a cross-reference Bible. 
uh, this really should be your first move. I don't know about you if your Bible currently has little superscript, little numbers that are after some phrases, and then it's got a margin in the middle or on the outside, and it's got other lists of places to look. But that's what I'm hinting at or telling you to actually do. A cross-reference is another location found in the Word of God where the same phrase or the same word can be found. So if I see the word, uh, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Miss Ann shared that recently. If I see the word love and then I look in the margin of a lot of Bibles, I can see where love appears in other places in Scripture. This is why I'm telling you this today, because this is a wonderful tool for you to be able to use to study God's word, to give you a fuller or a more complete picture of what it is that you're studying. So in verse 14, just like I told you, we'll read it in a second, but you're going to hear that phrase white hair. It's going to help me understand what John is communicating to me if I can actually have a concordance that refers me back to the almighty having hair white as wool. Because that's the connection John's trying to make to those who are going to read his letter. There are tons of resources available online for you um, uh, that you can go to. One of them is called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. We'll put up a slide in just a minute that has some um, resources. Just take a picture of it, go to it. But BibleStudyTools.com also is a wonderful place Okay? It's got great resources for free. You don't have to sign up or anything like that. And it's very helpful. The third helpful practical thing when studying God's word is this. Carefully choose a biblical commentary. Now, I could probably throw a toothpick. Well, a handful of toothpicks into the crowd, and that would represent how many of you will ever purchase a biblical commentary. Now, I don't say that to talk down. I'm just saying to you, if you ever choose to dive deep into God's word, you need one of these, but you've got to carefully get one. You cannot just pick up any off the shelf because without going into it, There are those who are of the Reformed tradition and Calvinistic theology, and they write Bible commentaries. Me, as a Pentecostal, I would not necessarily get all of the fullness of what I believe out of that commentary because it's written from somebody in a different tradition of the Christian faith. Notice I didn't say they were not Christians. I'm just saying I want something that backs up what I know to be true already. I want you to carefully consider your choice before you get a biblical commentary and make sure you've got one that is not going to confuse you but simplify things and help you. What a commentary is, it's very simple. It's my comments on the word of God. If we were to transcribe the things that I say today about these verses, you could call it Dexter Bambera's commentary on Revelation 1, 9 through 20. So it's my comments about what I've studied and see. So two scholars that I trust and I read often for my own personal study and for message preparation um, are in the next slide that will come up with the resources. Their names are F.F. Bruce and Gordon Fee. 
Um, they're theologically sound. They're of the same tradition of myself. They believe in the fullness of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit today. Um, they do individual books like you could go probably today on Amazon and get a commentary on Galatians written by Gordon Fee for $7.99 on Amazon and get it shipped to your house. They're great. They're amazing study and resource tools that will really open up your mind to the word of God. The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge is a concordance. It's free. You can use it and just click whatever chapter of whatever book of the Bible you want to look at. And then BibleStudyTools.com has wonderful other online free things for you to look at. So if you ever want to dig deep in God's Word, first use cross-references. Find out where else it talks about these things. Second, get a trusted commentary Okay, something that's written that helps you understand the perspective of the writer. They're going to give you cultural context, historical, all that stuff. And then lastly, don't use your imagination. <laughs> use the Bible. Amen? Can I get a loud amen? Okay, let's jump back to Revelation chapter 1. Verse 14, it says this. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes We're like a flame of fire. Now, if you use your imagination, I I think, Miss Diane, I think your head of hair is glorious. It would be a head of hair like that, okay? White as wool, like snow, just beautiful. His eyes, though, were not in human form like we can see. Have you ever met somebody with beautiful eyes? You're like, whoa, your eyes, just amazing. In this moment, I have to say, if you saw a human who had eyes that were like a flame of fire, you'd be terrified and scared out of your socks, (laughs) right? Yes? Okay. This is what John is witnessing before him as he starts to describe it. There's a correlating passage in Daniel chapter 7 where the prophet Daniel is actually going to tell us what he sees in a vision He sees four beasts, Daniel chapter 7, if you read the first portion, it talks about four beasts. They are not crazy um, supernatural beasts, although they're supernatural images. They represent, Daniel tells us, they represent four human kings. Now, after he describes those four beasts and what happens, he says something amazing in verse 9. As I look, I want you to listen today. I'm telling you, I want you to wake up to the reality of God's word. It's amazing. As I looked, thrones, plural, were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay, it went from plurality to singularity. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Can you imagine this, what Daniel is seeing? The Ancient of Days sat down on this throne. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And verse 10, it says this, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, almost like a a stream of water would. And a thousand thousands served him, like we would say an innumerable host. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And if you pay attention, you might see something really strange. The court sat in judgment 
and the books were opened. The court is a plural word. I want you to imagine the Supreme Court, okay? We've got a number of justices, and then we've got chief justice, so-and-so, okay? So the Ancient of Days is sitting in the court as the court sits in judgment, and the books, plural, were opened. The Bible talks about heavenly books. There are records in heaven. I don't know if you've done your taxes yet, but time's passed for that, right? (laughs) You should have. Uh, you, you keep books for the income that you have. You get a W-2. You get all these things. We have record keeping here on the earth. The heavens have records as well. There's a book of life that we must have our names written in. But it says that the court goes to session and the books were open. It's really, really interesting if you dive a little bit deeper. So back to Revelation. John sees the Son of Man just like Daniel sees the Father the Ancient of Days, this is an important theological connection that John is making. Because for any pre, any ex-Jew that would have been in the room that day hearing what he wrote down, they would have immediately thought back to the wacky stuff they heard about from Daniel and said, wait a second, I've heard this stuff before, but that was about God the Father, and now you're talking about the human God figure having this... Jesus is God, plain and simple, okay? Another connection point from Revelation 114 is to Daniel chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. It just keeps getting weirder. Daniel is receiving another vision, and he records this. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. Um, I did a little research, not a ton, but a little. This is not a fabric belt or leather that's gotten painted gold or dipped in gold. It literally was a belt, heavy, made of gold that he sees from this place around his waist. Verse 6, his body was like beryl, which is a jewel, a, a mineral, his face like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were like flaming torches. Daniel and John are seeing the same dude, okay? Hundreds of years apart, having already seen the living Christ and walked with him as a disciple, being called out of the boat from the Sea of Galilee with his brother. He's walked with him. He has been with him. He has uh, prayed with him. He's ate with him, slept near him. He's traveled and done ministry with him. He saw and knows that he's been crucified. He saw the resurrected Christ and now he is attempting to build the church, but there are churches in trouble and they are in persecution and they're doing some other things they shouldn't do. And he's told, write a letter and tell them what you see. And he sees the risen Christ in the same way Daniel sees him. It says his arms and his legs in Daniel were like that of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. I don't know if you've ever been in a multitude. I've been in a multitude before. I've actually been in a room with thousands of people worshiping God and I can remember distinctly praying this prayer many times. Lord, let me never forget this sound. 
I, I know that's a weird thing to talk about, but it just was so beautiful to hear a multitude of people worshiping. I mean, people just making their own song, but there's a worship leader on stage, thousands of people in the room, the presence of God so tangible nearly that you could just be incapacitated by it. And I said, God, don't let me forget this. It's something that will mark you. Hearing the sound of a multitude would mark you. Hearing the sound that John hears, the sound of war trumpet sort of voice, that would be something that marked you. So again, this helps us understand God is allowing John to see Jesus as the same son of man that Daniel saw in his visions. And the similarities continue. Verse 15 in chapter 1. His feet were like polished bronze. We just read in Daniel that his arms and legs were like polished bronze. Refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. I've been to Niagara Falls. It is deafening. The sound of many waters is deafening. Here John is listening to a voice that sounds like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. This is verse 15, 16, Uh, of Revelation chapter 1. The seven stars then get explained in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Revelation, and we'll cover that right now. Chapter 1 verse 20 says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven lampstands, excuse me, are the seven churches. So look at me and listen really quick today. Sometimes it's not all that much of a mystery. (laughs) Sometimes we can go into some kooky stuff if we start trying to develop our own ideas of what these things represented. But Daniel, very clearly, go back and read all of Daniel. It's a short book, but Daniel chapter 7, at the end of the chapter, he says, and here is the vision explained. The four beasts are four human kings who will arise. So we don't have to imagine some supernatural beast is going to come and terrorize the earth. It's not that. It is a human king that's being... So here, John is having the same sort of moment where he's able to have the mystery unfold because Jesus tells him exactly what it means. But I don't know about you and what you believe about angels... And I don't have time today to get into angelology. There's enough weird stuff that we'll talk about in this series. Angelology would be the study of angels, which would encompass the good ones and the bad ones. Let me say this. The Jewish people from time before us and before Christ, the Jewish people have long believed, based on the Old Testament and rabbinic tradition, that we have... Guardian angels. I don't know if you have ever heard that phrase. I don't know that I would use that phrase and say, I have a guardian angel who just attends to me. I don't know if I can proceed with my theology in that direction. But what I can tell you is this, that when Jesus says that the seven stars are the angels, that means the stars 
are the angels of the churches. Now, angels is a word that can also mean, and originally does mean, messenger. But angels have a purpose, spiritual, supernatural beings called angels have a purpose. And that is they are agents of God that serve at his pleasure and they protect or aid his people. You say, pastor, I don't know about guardian angels in the Bible. Talk to me after service and I'll give you a whole list. It's actually, there are lots of them. Okay. There are lots of different places and I'll show you a couple, but there are two possible interpretations going back to the the understanding of the seven stars being the angels of the churches. There are two possible ways to interpret that. One widely held view is that the angels are messengers. They are the human pastors or leaders of the churches. Another view, and this might take you into some cool stuff that you can find out about. Another view is that they are actually supernatural agents of God that are supervising these seven churches. I don't know that you could actually say every church, Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching, that sort of thing, has a guardian angel or a supervising angel. But I do know this, that there are 77. Everybody say that number with me, 77. Say it louder, 77. 77 references in the book of Revelation alone that use the word, Greek word, angelos, which means messenger, and 69 of them are undeniably about supernatural beings. The only eight that anybody has a question about are with the letters to the churches at the beginning in Revelation 1 through 3. It's the same word. It has never meant human in other places. But somehow we've gotten to the place where we really do believe it's just to the pastor. There's some, there are some hard things that you have to try to figure out. Because one of the churches, the angel of the church, is told to repent. Well, surely that's not a heavenly being that has to repent. So there's got to be some sort of hybrid understanding collectively that God has supernatural supervision over these churches and the humans are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So let's keep going. I've not always held the view that they were supernatural beings in there, but once I came across the knowledge of 77 references and all 69 of the other ones are clearly supernatural beings. And there's no Greek gr- grammatical, grammatical change or challenge in those first three chapters of Revelation. Then it caused me to really kind of say, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe I should think about this more. Maybe I should study it more. That's what I hope you do too. Amen? Again, this supervisory or guardian, if you will, angel is found in other places in Scripture. Let me spark your study this week on angels. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they, talking about angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Interesting. Jesus speaks of them himself in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. You may not remember this or 
you may have heard this but forgotten, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. Matthew 18.10 says this, and the little ones that he's talking about are not human children. It's not the same passage where he lets the little ones come to him. These little ones he's referring to are believers. See that you don't despise one of these believers, for I tell you that in heaven, I'm sorry, this is in the Bible. It's weird. I tell you that in heaven, their possessive, their angels always see the face of my father in heaven. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the Bible that's more than just blessed are the poor in spirit and love one another. There's some really cool stuff in God's word. In fact, there is a vast supernatural world that I believe many believers are ignorant about and ignorant of. You don't think it exists, and if you do think it exists, you haven't learned much about it, so you don't know what you're dealing with. Why is it that the apostle writes to the church and says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not you and sister Betty that's in the fight, but against principalities, supernatural forces at work. There, there is a supernatural world that many of us are ignorant about and ignorant of. So we need to dive deeper into this to fully understand really our faith. I think it's really cool, actually. Okay, let's finish up. Verse 17. It says this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. How about you? <laughs> okay, yeah. Dude's eyes are on fire. He's got white shining. Uh, he's got a shining face and white woolly hair, you know, standing in the middle of these lampstands, these menorah. Like there's some crazy stuff he's seeing. He says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. It's good. It's good if you catch it. The right hand always demonstrates favor, acceptance, openness, willingness, hospitality. God himself extended favor to John, and he said, don't you be afraid. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last and the living one. It says in verse 18, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place. The self-descriptive language that Jesus uses here in the last few verses is clear. He says, I was the first, the last, I, I was dead, I'm alive, I've got the keys. I want to focus on that aspect of the keys of death in Hades for a moment. I want you to really, really, really study the Bible. Not every um, instance of this word Hades that shows up is does have a physical place or a only spiritual place. They're not mutually exclusive. There's been all kinds of things that have been um, passed down traditionally about this place of Hades or the gates of Hades and it being a geographical location. Listen, what Jesus is telling John in this moment, I want you to understand this, is that all authority has been given to him even over death 
and its destination. Amen? He's got authority over all things. In fact, he said as much when he was alive on earth in ministry. He said, all authority has been given to me by the Father. And then what does he do when he sends his disciples? That's you and me. He says, now go and share this gospel. Preach it. Proclaim it to the ends of the earth. The one who was dead but is now alive has all authority. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged. That's amazing when you think about it. That he has authority over my boss even if he or she is not a believer. He's got authority over tyrants and kings and princes and queens. He's got authority over all things. Over the administrators at the school. Over the police. Over law enforcement in our land. He's literally got authority over all things. If he has authority over all things, then that means I can trust him with all things. I want to key in on... Verse 19, for just one last moment while we're together. Because we already covered verse 20 in its connection to verse 16. Verse 19, and I, I gave you a sneak peek at the beginning of the message by saying this. Some of the things that we're going to look at in the book of Revelation either had occurred, were occurring, or are to come, like will be fulfilled in the future. So that's why your pastor is encouraging you to use every resource at your availability, every resource that you can get your hands on that will help you, and with the gift of the Holy Spirit who will guide you through as you study God's word, you'll undoubtedly uncover some things that you never understood before. God will help reveal these things to you. And as we go through Revelation, we'll be able to most of the time clearly see this event took place then, which means we're not waiting for it now. So then we'll start to understand a little bit better as we develop our thoughts about the end of all things or eschatology.